This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello and welcome to Salvage Live, hosted by me, Annie Olaloku Tariba, and my best friend, Barnaby Ray. Salvage Live is an event series brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage, a journal appearing twice a year with essays, fiction, art, and poetry for a desolated left learning to address not the good old times, but the bad new ones. Precarity, exploitation, and drudgery are feelings that many of us readily associate with the jobs that we have. But often we feel like if we could just change industries, get that senior position or switch out our manager, maybe it might be a bit less shit. Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life so the saying goes. Sounds really simple, but many of us, even after landing what we think is a dream position, still have quite a bit to complain about. From the dream job to the moonlighting side hustle, we are constantly being seduced into taking our our leisure and ceding control over what we enjoy doing and how we do it. Elsewhere, the vast majority of us are forced by the need to make ends meet to take jobs that we just don't like. So what if the problem wasn't just shit jobs, but work itself? As productivity and wages continue to diverge, work is increasingly costing us in time, energy and freedom. Today, we want to explore the concept of work, its history, its contemporary logics, and its place in our revolutionary horizons. With our guest today, Amelia Horgan, who is a writer, researcher, and editor from London. She's currently a PhD candidate on work uh, on work at the University of Essex School of Philosophy and Art History. Her book, Lost in Work, by uh, published with Pluto Press, came out this year. Uh, our other guest, Sarah Jaff, is a Type Media Center fellow and the author of Work Won't Love You Back, A Necessary Trouble Americans in, Re- in Revolt. You can read her piece in the latest issue of Salvage. So I'm going to get straight into it and start with Amelia and ask our first question, which is, what's so wrong with work? I think it's great to start right at the heart of it. Um, I think that's, I suppose we should contrast our view, the socialist view, the Marxist view with, with the liberal view here. And the liberal view is there's this pie of jobs this big pie. Some people get a great slice. That slice has like, you know, maybe it's got the face of the the cake on it, you know, that little creature with the face, it's got that bit or, or you get a really crap bit, right? You get a bit with no decoration. So the problem is how do we work out who gets which bit and are our processes for determining who gets which bit fair? So people rightly point to the fact that it tends to be um, people of a particular class or a particular race or a particular gender who get, you know, the, the, the best bit of the cake. And there's not nothing to this view, right? In, in a class stratified society, some people will have jobs which afford them more autonomy. But the question should always be what determines the entirety of the cake, right? Rather than who gets which sort of bit. And if we take that into sight, we have this sort of fundamental 
uh, fact, the fact of exploitation. Um, and that, that's one problem with work, but it's, it's certainly not the only one. Um, we might think about the physiological effects of, of work. We might think about um, the repeatedly doing the same gestures, this, the strain of particular bits of work, and that's not isolated to sort of manual labor, right? That might be um, the rise of repetitive strain injury within office work, for example. Um, we might think of the psychological effects of, of work. Um, we might also think about the experience of being dominated at work, the experience of being subject to particular power relations, which relate particularly to that that bit of exploitation, right? Um, we might think of the kind of subjects that are produced at work, the way that work sort of relies on um, a, a regime or a technology of gender and race, but also itself reproduces that in the division of labour. Um, and of course, it, it makes sense to distinguish here what we're talking about, because some people might be talking about work in the most general sense, work meaning sort of like effort to maintain some kind of society or some kind of some kind of goal. But I think it makes sense to single out the specific relationships and experience of work under capitalism, of work under a particular regime of, of the capturing of, of value. And, and when you take that into view, you get something slightly different from um, the fact of being obliged to do something at all, because um, any living creature will have to do something to reproduce itself, right? Um, so if we take in, what is, okay, well, how does that basic need, how is that figured, how does that take place in a capitalist society? We can see it, it causes all of these kinds of, um, it causes um, the possibility of riches, of course, right? The possibility of um, all of these many, many things, many, many um, social forms, many um, commodities, but it also has these uh, profoundly harmful effects. So much. Sorry, getting to gross of the right knee button. Um, it's okay. Um, and I think that's, um, I think, you know, elsewhere you've talked about how, um, ironically, the left today kind of talks less and less about work. Um, and I think in that space, uh, a lot of, uh, it seems that work is this like ever present thing, but often undefined. And I think that the Kind of different registers at which we talk about work is really important also being cognizant to them um and i think that kind of ties into the rephrasing of the question for sarah uh, <laughs> uh which is like uh if you know there is much potentially wrong with work why do we seem to love it so much you know i thought amelia had solved the problem. Had solved. i'm gonna go home now um, but no, apparently not. Um, yeah, I think the problem is that we often don't love it that much, right? That there's an intense amount of pressure actually that goes into telling us that we should love it and that our lives will be better if we do, right? The, the do what you love, um, tote bags and signs and memes and, and whatever, like it's really intensely aggressive propaganda and has only been getting more so over the course of my life, which is the last 42 years. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we're stuck in this space where like work is objectively getting worse by most measures, right? And that was even before the pandemic, which definitely made work worse for pretty much everyone, unless you're Jeff Bezos. Um, we have been getting more and more aggressively pressured to love it at the same time as it has fewer and fewer other rewards, which is to say like decent pay and it's getting more dangerous and it's getting more painful and it's getting harder to find and harder to come by. Um, 
and particularly harder to come by sort of stable, reliable. Um, I hate the term family sustaining work, but nonetheless, that is the thing we're sort of comparing it to, right? And so I think the pressure to love your job is a particular part of not just work under capitalism, but work under neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism, late capitalism, whatever we want to call this phase of the hellscape that we're currently living in which has shifted away from the sort of industrial work ethic where you weren't really expected to love the car as it came past you on the Ford assembly line, right? Um, to a totally different phase of this thing. So I was just in Italy at the book fair in Turin, which literally takes place in what used to be the Fiat factory, a fact that I will be talking about for the next five years um, because it's now a mall and a convention center which it used to be this car factory, right? And that's the perfect illustration of what's happened to work is those jobs in the Fiat factory, which would have sucked in an entirely different way. And we can get into perhaps all of the demands that were made by those particular workers, that particular factory in a period of time, not all that long ago. Um, to Now it's filled with little stores where maybe 20 or 30 people work in each one and you have to smile at everybody all day long. And you probably don't have a union and it's probably much harder to organize with your coworkers because there's only 10 of you and you work really odd scheduling and all of these things that have shifted and come with this new story about how much we love doing them. I'd like to, hello, both of you. Uh, I'd like to ask a big question then about um, if we've got this critical sense of a lot of the work that we do, what that means for the kind of politics that we can pursue, really building on what Sarah was just saying about the, the Fordist Keynesian past in which people had uh, stable jobs and, and, the, and the gloriously flexible present in which uh, people hustle for, for jobs in, in the kind of dominant ideological image of, of, of the change. Um, I, I want to know what kinds of political struggles against oppressive forms of work uh, can happen in the here and now? What kind of politics we should have in, in thinking about how we want to change work? One thing that's quite striking is that the conversation about work has returned, as of so many conversations about capitalism, about the economy, after 2008. Um, this event has that same title as Kathy Weeks's great book, The Problem with Work, which I think was 2011. Um, and a lot of the debate about work since has focused on the reduction of labor time, the, the, the celebration of free time. Uh, and we had in the in the Corbyn years in Britain proposals thinking about a four day week, for example. Um, but it seems to me that in the 20th century, there were rich traditions of thinking about work on the left, both social democratic and communist and others, which weren't only about time that they were. It's not right that the concern with doing less work is entirely new. May Day begins uh, as, uh, as as a protest, a demand for the eight-hour working day. And it's in the, it's on the 1st of May in honor of the, the traditional May Day sort of pagan holiday of, of, of ritual festivities and not working. But as well as that concern with working time, there was also a concern with the content of our work and with the form of our work, who controlled it. You know, was it democratically controlled in nationalized factories or socialized factories? Uh, lots of struggles over health and safety, over wages, over conditions at work. Um, and so I, I, I wonder now what kinds of politics you both see um, that, that can talk both about our freedom from work, but also because that can be kind of carving out a little space of freedom while leaving the, the hegemonic oppressive system intact, how we could think the transformation of work um, uh, as well as trying to, uh, trying to limit its scope. Um, I'll come to Amelia first, but it's really a question for both of you. 
That's a really great question. And I think you're totally right to point to this sort of false dichotomy that's been established between the qualitative and the quantitative approach to changing work, right? Reducing or improving. And and I, I think it's something that um, as you point out, people get wrong when they're talking about the past. People imagine that there's a struggle for narrowly defined sort of bread and butter issues versus these more transformative demands, right? But they're they're present in both. Um, and and we also see, I suppose, something like a like a bit of a, a degree of mudslinging between both camps, right? It's a sort of stereotyped version of, of, of either side. One saying sort of, oh, you just want um, no work and robots versus, okay, you just want to get Fordism back. And, and I think we can bring these things together, not the stereotyped version, not the store man version, but the, um, but the sort of reality and that this was always present in, in the demands for workers' freedom and the horizons that workers set for what work could be like. Um, there's no need to choose between them. You asked uh, another question of how we think of both. And, and, and I suppose one one risk of, of focusing only on the quantitative is that you do not think therefore about not only the quality of working the work activity itself but also the quality of, of leisure time right and you don't think okay, how, how do we bring that with a general decommodification because also what is the point of a uh, reduced working week if it just means more time with um uh like sort of privatized caring labor with privatized social reproduction right is that is that enhancing the overall freedom is that enhancing the overall possibility for communal for collective life um it seems to only go a little of the way to do that right um so something that that takes both into view and of course we can draw on the history of the workers movement there and so this has always been the demand right it's not either or it it, it must be both um and bringing those in along with sort of wage and non-wage struggle seems very important um in terms of how a politics fit to doing both, it's sort of one thing to talk about. It, and I think you pointed to this in the beginning of the question, or at least this is what I'm going to say based on what you said on that, which is that consciousness is extremely high, right? We have like online communities where people talk um, and read and discuss. And that is a, a, a really exciting thing. But the question is, do the institutions we currently have, we meaning the left, are they able to fulfill that demand and that consciousness? And do people seek to bring about the things they desire through those institutions or do they mainly just sort of post online, right? Not in a kind of like get off the internet comrades way, but in a kind of like, what does this mean in this moment where we have um, a, an intense degree of politicization, but not necessarily the institutions that are in the moment capable of realizing that and not necessarily the moment of consciousness being raised leading to participation. So how do we join that up? And and that is a real um, challenge, especially in a moment of, I think it would be fair to describe this as a moment in the UK of relative demobilization. You have really a quite high point of activity, um, you know, nearly a mass movement, right? Um, and then you have a period of the pandemic, a period of um, people feeling hopeless of not coming together. And then we have, of course, a, a further problem, which is that um, to get those institutions to bring be brought together the consciousness, we need to um, build back a workers' movement that's been attacked and um, faces some of the most regressive trade union laws in Europe, right? So that's going to take a really long time. But we have um, the urgent need of people to improve their, their individual workplaces combined with um, another kind of temporality, which is the, the temporality of, of climate crisis, right, which forces the issue in, in other ways. So I suppose I, it sounds very pessimistic, but I, I think the overall point is that um, it's one thing to have a kind of consciousness that, that brings um, these aspects together. And I think it's possible and I think it's very important that we articulate that against that kind of um, myth of uh, a workers' movement, which only narrowly focused on these sort of 
um, you know, material rough things, right? Um, verse, and, and also against those kind of that kind of straw man mudslinging. But then, how do we translate that into action? Is a is a is a really tricky challenge too. Sarah. Yeah, I was just thinking because Amelia was talking about consciousness of um, Ellen Bravo, who's a legendary organizer here in the States, who's one of the founders of the nine to five movement, which was organizing office working women. And she used to joke about having a button that said, um, it's not my consciousness, it's my pay that needs raising. Um, anyway, I loved that one. But like the thing, the story that you told, I think is a little bit different here in the States because we don't actually have the comeback of working time or rather we have the comeback of working time as an issue, not coming from a sort of social movement level um, or a sort of political conversation. There are some people who've introduced it, but the four day week is not anywhere near on the level of discussion here as it is across Europe. Um, and I have been struggling to try to get people to talk about working time as a demand. And what I often get from people is, but don't people want more hours? And the question, of course, is why do they want more hours? They want more hours because they need more money. Um, not because they really want to spend more time at McDonald's. It's because every hour you spend at McDonald's is another you know, $10 an hour. Um, and that means $10 more in your pocket. Um, so this is a conversation that we've actually been struggling to have. Um, and it was the main conversation of the labor movement for a very long time, right? It was working time and less of it in particular because it was a unifying demand, because it could spread across. And it was particularly, and Kathy Weeks writes about this, right? It was particularly appealing to women workers because they were still, of course, doing the double shift because they were still doing that reproductive labor Amelia was talking about. And if the pandemic reminded us of one thing, it is that women are still doing that reproductive labor on top of whatever else they're doing. And men are still not helping out. Thanks, guys. Um, but when we talk about working time and when we talk about these other demands that workers are making, I think it's important to note that these things get absorbed. So I was talking about the Fiat factory because it's my favorite thing to talk about. The Fiat factory and the Lordstown factory here in the States were really famous in the 70s for being sites of rebellion and of workers actually saying like, you know what, it's not good enough to have all of our bread and butter needs met, our material needs met, if we are still spending 40 years of our life on this friggin' assembly line being miserable. And so they were making demands for different kinds of work that engaged their creativity. And, um, well, great guys, we've got that now and we've lost the sort of security that came with it. And that doesn't mean that the answer is to go back to Fordism, right? Um, I will yell about that until the cows come home, but it does mean that there's something real that people did want in work that is more fulfilling in some way. And I think we should take that seriously, even as we should also like have the sense to think people don't just want work because they want work qua work. People want work because that's how you pay the rent. Um, and these are things that I think we are smart enough and sophisticated enough to think about together and to think about what it is that is necessary when we talk about work. And necessary, I mean, for the functioning of a society that doesn't set the planet on fire, um, as well as the functioning of individual people and our individual flourishing happiness. And 
the labor movement we have certainly is not doing the greatest job of this, but I'm actually really heartened by some of the demands that are coming out of the workers organizing of the last year or so um, that does have to do with time, but also has to do with the abject misery of the work. And it has to do with this this new title of essential worker or key worker of the people who had to keep going to work during the pandemic and then watch the the boss's profit margins get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they are still getting the same amount of pay and probably even more forced overtime because their coworkers are getting sick. And so there are fewer people on the floor at any given time. And that kind of intensity is bringing out a lot of anger um, that I think we underestimate. It's going to be very easy to underestimate when we are relatively safe working behind our computers to underestimate the kind of anger that you have if you are still going into the grocery store, the factory, the hospital, and your work has just gotten a lot more dangerous. You haven't gotten a raise. Your conditions are not improving. And in fact, they're getting worse. And now everybody's just going back to normal, throwing their masks off and uh, cheerfully spreading the plague. So (laughs) I think that what I've seen that gives me hope is actually sort of the spread of things like the Starbucks union, um, but also the demands being made around that working time from some of these factory workers who've gone on strike in the last year. And I was just thinking as you spoke, Sarah, that, um, you know, in the UK, as there were discussions ongoing about the four day week, that was also coinciding with the discussion about Uh, zero hours contracts and I think there's like a huge amount of tension in terms of like how the left navigates this language around working time in particular because you know we currently have an economy in which work is far more mixed in its form than it has historically been right um and I guess like pushing through that I I wanted to connect this to a a separate question, especially if, if, as we consider for a second, like the gig economy, the Amazons of the world, as well as like the deliveries, Ubers, et cetera, um, in a sense that I want to understand if, if you had any thoughts on how representations of work as well are shaping the terrain of struggle for us. So kind of thinking about um, in the last few years, strikes uh, from McDonald's workers, how this image that we get in media representation of the teenage kid who's trying to get some money after school, um, which jars so aggressively with the reality that most people working in these these jobs are breadwinners, um, how that has shaped the terrain of struggle and also the capacity of the public to be sympathetic to their struggles and how maybe potentially the left might be able to break through that. Go to Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, the, the McDonald's worker, the gig worker, the Starbucks worker, like all of these are sort of stories. Um, I remember when I was working in restaurants and I, you know, I'm back, moved back to New Orleans recently. So I'm like back in the place. I literally had dinner last night next to the restaurant I used to work in. Um, and people would always ask me like, Oh, well, what do you really do? Right. The assumption was that I was like a youngish person working in a restaurant that was that was temporary. That wasn't going to be my main thing. I was probably a student. Sometimes they were right. Sometimes they were wrong. I was working in restaurants for several years after I finished university. Um, But the assumption that those are not like real jobs, that those are kind of first gigs that people get and then they move on um, is really, really not true anymore. Right. The average I mean, this survey is several years old now, but um. The Fight for 15 did a survey of of sort of people who worked in fast food in the States. And it was like the average age was 
over 30. And for women, it was like 34 and they were majority women. Um, and a lot of them are mothers. A lot of them are breadwinners in a variety of ways. Um, and we, you know, we hear these nice stories that basically tell us that we don't have to worry about people, right? That these are fine. Um, and those are really obviously not true. And the interesting thing right now that I'm like, I haven't sort of worked this through yet, partly because I need to actually go do the reporting, but that the Starbucks campaign is is going about this in a very different direction than the Fight for 15 did. The Fight for 15 was not trying to win union elections at individual stores, right? It was, it was sort of having these big strikes of a couple of workers at different stores across the city to be really disruptive. And the thing about that is it had sort of diminishing returns, right? Like, once employers realize that their business was not actually going to be shut down, then it became easier to be like, oh, they'll go on strike for another one day and then we'll just keep going. Um, and now that's really dropped off. Whereas with Starbucks, they're actually winning union elections store by store by store. Or, you know, I mean, I feel like I get a press release every other day from the labor board saying that we've got, you know, this is how many Starbucks elections we've got today. This is how many have won. Um, the last time I looked, it was a 69 certified Starbucks union. So nice. But um there is something about that that both tells us about sort of the failure of the earlier strategy, which was often based around sort of making these workers visible, but also like creating sympathy for how bad their conditions were versus directly um, building worker power and solidarity store by store. Um, and yeah, again, I, I want to sort of do the digging on that, but I think it's a really interesting question to ask ourselves is, you know, what good is representation? Is representation power? And in which ways is it? And in which ways does it really fail us as a form of power? Okay. No, I think that's that's really important. And I um I mean I think there's this kind of constant struggle, um, especially as you I mean, from this side of the pond, you see a resurgence of discussion about work, whereas like actual union power is uh seems to be on the rise only in very specific segments of the market, specifically often organizing around the gig economy and just thinking about how oftentimes discussions about being working class in Britain uh, ignore the reality that one of the key ways of building power is through the union. Um, and I kind of wanted to uh, connect this to a kind of uh, because I've been thinking recently about the way in which, and it's a bit of a pivot back towards like the nature of work itself rather than the struggle. Um, I'm thinking about the way that there has been a sort of work creep um, into our everyday lives through the um, through the advent of and rise of social media, um, which basically makes us representations of our employers everywhere we go, and we've seen examples recently in the last couple of years of people being fired um, from their jobs for things that they've said, et cetera, and done offline. And just thinking about how there is a much more public kind of face of work um, and how people have expectations of employers to act on their interests when complained to, um, even if they're not customers. So you can get, you know, thousands of people from across the country sending um, letters into like one coffee shop owner to like fire this person. Right. Um, and I'm kind of wondering how that tension 
comes into play, right? So you kind of talk about how the kind of union strategy of like building a store by store versus like a public which seems to be relatively apathetic to the struggles that are actually going on for the workers themselves, but seem highly involved and invested in employment practices in terms of like asking these things of employers. It's a bit of a garbled question. I hope something could be taken out of that. Um, but I'm just kind of trying to ruminate on um, how that maybe has changed the nature of work, work, but also specifically how that has changed the nature of how we engage with work, how much of our time we get to keep. And yeah, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I'll go to Amelia first. I think those are really interesting thoughts. Um, I suppose it seems like maybe what one way to think about what you said then about the possibility of people who aren't even involved directly in your employment kind of complaining online and getting you in trouble, right? Is there's a kind of um, uh, the possibility of everyone being a customer that points to it's a kind of symptom of the reduced power of, of labour, right? The reduced bargaining power and and um, I suppose it's also one of the slogans of this uh, sort of new public management style in which like the public sector is not only subject um, sort of to market relations via um, things going out, like contracts going out and, and being bid on, but also kind of ideologically, culturally, the breaking up of, of practices. Um, there's this uh, uh, funny little phrase which, are, which is how you describe kind of practices that aren't exactly contractual but are how things are done in the, in the on necessarily contractual but describe how things are done which is old Spanish custom so the idea is that workers have these kind of things they get to do themselves um, and these need to be broken down such that um, the public sector or, or any employer kind of looks more like that really competitive market market version um, and one way in which this happens sort of ideologically that I find like uh, very interesting is this imperative like imperative that you treat everyone as a customer all the time and, and what that means and, and it's a subject role that, that people um find easier to take up right people uh, naturally behave like customers right rather than um as uh, kind of fellow workers or fellow or have fe having fellow feeling to each other so that that seems important as the point of work creek in general it's really interesting because it, it, I think it applies, the temporality of it is experienced quite differently or the pressures of it are experienced quite differently. So the online reputation management of someone who's uh, an Uber driver, for example, will be different to someone who's, um, you know, kind of like highly networked, um, sort of uh, precarious, but um, precarious professional status millennial kind of like online, like making sure that they have to be online all the time, right? The experience of that creep and that responsabilization um, and that feeling that you have to be the custodian of your social capital. You've got to be the captain of your little ship, right? Um, that feels quite different in, in to different people. The temporalities are different, but it seems like a general, um, general sort of ideological, but also quite like strongly material force shaping people's lives and experience of work. And interestingly, it's exactly this, that, that a lot of workplaces um, really draw out this sense of, what a thing you work on is your relationship to yourself, your relationship to others, your relationship to the job, right? That's like a, a, a central object of, of work actually across across the economy. Um, that's not just something that's in these kind of like professional sort of more passion jobs. That, that's everywhere, right? Um, so that kind of like therapeutic model of um, self as project um, is something that um, 
doesn't just exist sort of uh, out there in the background with this like general feeling that like one ought to be productive, which is how it's often expressed. This like, you know, this general feeling that you should be productive, but it's actually there that it's actually there in um, people's workplace management styles and in people's um, the fact that because the possibility of full-time work recedes, the need to be sort of anxiously maintaining yourself as a particular kind of subject increases, right? So, so I suppose that's a very roundabout way of saying that that, that creep um, is often spoken about as if it's just a sort of merely the project of people's sort of mental frenzy, like we're taught at school to be productive and then it explodes all the time. But, but I think it, it really comes from the experience of work and the experience of the work of looking for work. Um, and, and it leaves people um, sort of exhausted. And what that means for this question, to bring it back to the question of working time, is that um, the quality of leisure time, of free time, of, of non-work time, whatever we want to call it, is so diminished because um, you either have that that anxious feeling of needing to maintain yourself as a particular kind of subject, or in the cases of some bits of work, the direct intervention of your employer into your leisure time so if you're on a zero hours contract the text saying you've got to come in for tomorrow you've got to come in tonight right the fact you don't know what your schedule is for next week or most kind of perhaps um, most extraordinary most extraordinarily but also most symptomatically this um leaked pamphlet from amazon um, an amazon warehouse in the states where uh, people were told to treat themselves as industrial athletes which meant when you were at home when you weren't working eat a particular thing sleep a particular amount do a particular way of um embodied maintenance basically right so it's that that creep of um none of your time being your own it looks very different for different jobs different sectors of the economy but i think it's it's fair to say that this is a a generalized state um unfortunately we are faced with a very uh, the, the liberal public discourse around this just says okay focus on your relationship to work just take a step back maintain that slightly less nervously but less anxious about work and that's it right and there's a worry that this becomes the dominant one and we lose sight of okay what changes work what's the only thing that's ever really changed work well unions right that that's what shaped everything in a workplace from um you know that struggle between uh, workers and capital that shaped every single thing we can see right um so uh, yes, that, that's the, the final point I'll say on this is that the worry that that the response to work becomes this liberal public discourse of sort of maintain your relationship to work a little better. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the way that like this guy right here, apologies for my antique phone, um, becomes your boss in so many different conditions, right? So I, I'm back in the States now, but I've been in England for the last however long. I was in Italy for a little bit. Um, and one of the things that happens to me when I am traveling is that most of my freelance work, and I am a freelancer, which means I am a slave to this gadget, um, most of my freelance work is on American time. So like, you know, one night I was walking back to the bus from a drink with a friend and an editor emails me and is like, hey, can we jump on the phone? And this is an editor that I, you know, get on well with. So I could be like, yes, but I've had two mojitos. So, you know, just to be clear, like <laughs> I'm not entirely responsible for everything I say, but like, so my working time ends up expanded in these weird ways because like I exist on multiple platforms, but also, you know, people just send emails at all hours of the day and night and you are required to check them, respond to them, all of that. Um, in a different way, perhaps, than when you are looking at the app, if you're an Uber driver or a delivery rider, um, and thinking like, crap, I should turn that on because then I will have the opportunity to maybe make a few bucks. Um, and then I, 
So while I was in London, I stumbled into something that everybody maybe has heard about now, which is this big showdown between um, delivery couriers and the cops and the community in Dalston a couple of weeks ago. And it really um, made me think, and Rivka Brown wrote a good piece about it for Novara, if people haven't heard about it and want to catch up. Um, but what it made me think about is the way that all of these different kinds of, of precarious workers, um, though they are sort of raced and classed differently, um, are still intertwined, right? So the couriers are in Dalston because the yuppies are in Dalston, right? Because that's who is ordering all of this takeout all the time is people like me who are sitting at our friggin' desks at whatever hour of the day it is. To be fair, it's 1.30 in the afternoon where I am now. But, you know, um, so you have the issue of of people who are overworked, maybe not underpaid, but still expected to be working all the time. And that is why we have the internet of stuff your mom won't do for you anymore, as some Harvard Business School professors called it, where now somebody will bring you your dinner so you can sit at your desk and keep working, or because you're so exhausted from your day that you don't have the energy to cook for yourself. Um, at the same time, the couriers are mostly men of color, a lot of them immigrants, and therefore not seen as desirable in terms of the property values in that neighborhood. And so the cops get brought in to be their sort of de facto management, except the punishment for being an undesirable worker in that case, even though desirable by whom, um, is to potentially get deported, arrested, beaten, whatever. Um, and then the nice thing about it and this moment that is worker solidarity of a kind, right, is, again, the, another thing the phone does, which is the WhatsApp group that brought people out into the streets to stand up for these men who are being harassed and beaten and arrested. Um, and then you did get people who live in that community who are um, recipients of the, you know, we should call it a kind of caring work. And the, the worker that Rivka closes her piece with does call it a kind of caring work, right? He's like, she asks this guy why... He thinks that the community was willing to come out and stand up for them. And he's like, we bring them food when they're sick. We take care of them. And so I think that there is a lot of potential still for solidarity around these things because we have these disparate but connected experiences of work that never ends, of rent that is too damn high, of cops that are friggin' cops, um, that it doesn't only have to have a factory to exist in, but that the street actually becomes the workplace, the community, the neighborhood. And so we have to think once again about not, not the kind of union that we might have had in 1955 in the Fiat factory, but the kind of union that we could have between all of those people that says sometimes you're going to have to come out and put your body in front of the cop car and that hundreds of people were willing to do it. That, that broadening, that sense of uh, the politics of work as including so many other struggles is so important because there's this bad binary we get on the left between politics of work and class and politics of identity, when in fact, of course, there's an emancipatory politics of class, of race, of gender that wants to, to, to use all of these as grounds for, for, for transforming the world. And there's an identity politics of class as of race and gender that, that, that just wants to think defensively about our current experience of these things. Um, so I want to ask you then about both of you about um, uh, some of those broader discourses, which have now in recent years taken languages of work and, and used them to think about phenomena beyond the wage relations. So all of the, all of the language around emotional labor, um, and, uh, and, and whether it's a, it's a useful category for thinking the particular forms of waged work in which people also have to uh, perform certain affects, or whether it's useful much more broadly for thinking about um, uh, the, the, the worlds that we construct with our friends and neighbors. 
And then also similarly, um, discourses around social reproduction theory, uh, which want to talk about non-waged work um, and, uh, and, and sometimes draw a distinction between what Titi Bhattacharya calls profit making versus life making work, um, and 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 whether whether there's a whether there are kinds of work that we want to affirm um, uh, which are outside the wage relation, um, or whether we want to extend our criticism of the of the forms of alienation domination involved in waged work to all kinds of other spheres and talk about them as as work too, and in in talk about emotional labour and talk about uh, housework. All of these questions I think are live and, and and don't have obvious answers. So. Um, uh, I think both of you have things to say about this. I'll come to Amelia first. On that sort of first point about the extension of this concept of work to new terrains, um, I think there's one response to it, which I find uh, slightly frustrating, where people say, nope, it cannot be like that. You cannot call these activities work. And the reason is because the person who invented this concept of emotional labor, for example, didn't use it that way. And uh, it might be the case that we don't want to extend things but what i find troubling about that is this sort of uh this genetic claim the person who invented the concept gets to use it that's how it works right or this idea that there might not be something to it and, and i think in some ways the extension of work to more and more terrains is, is symptomatic of exactly what annie was talking about earlier that creep of work right it's not something which doesn't have a basis again it's not just people writing annoying articles or, or articles we might find slightly annoying and slightly annoying magazines right there is something that, that there is a base to this right um but that doesn't mean i think every application of it makes sense i think what we have to do is instead think quite strategically um so when we make something when we claim an activity as work what are we saying about that and i tend to think that it is tends to be abbreviative of some other claim so you say something's work you might do that if you're kind of in that in the sort of wages against housework frame. You might be claiming it as work to refuse it, right? Or you might be making some other kind of demand. You might be claiming something as work to just flag that it involves some kind of effort, right? Especially an effort that's been naturalized or part of a kind of rarefied gendered order. You might be claiming it as work to be explicitly paid. And now you see these kind of things, right? You see some people saying, you know, posting this tweet thread is work and therefore you ought to pay me. But that's not the only formulation of this. And I think people get carried away with just how frustrating those kind of it's work pay me claims are to 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 um to end up making a a, a sort of flattening point about about work claims in general. Because it might be the case that some of these claims to work um can create a political block, can draw attention to some kind of um, hitherto un underestimated or, or obscured aspect of social reality. And there's a much more banal point, which is that the theorizing of work um, has a real head start on the theorizing of non-work or activities commonly considered non-work. You have like a, a hundred extra years at least, right, to really think seriously about, about this activity. Um, so some of them might just be thinking, okay, well, what analytically do we get from this from this claiming of something as work? And, and that that might just be it's a framework that's at hand. So, so I I suppose what I what I really want to say is that people get very het up about the sort of extension of work to more and more things, and I think um, they're wrong too. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think what's going on with this, right? Like what is happening when something's being claimed as work? Um, we shouldn't sort of um, we shouldn't base our politics on what the most annoying sort of random, uh, I don't know, you, you've, you realize that these people are probably just like American teenagers, right, posting something, some nonsense on Twitter, right? We can't base our politics and what we think critically about concepts and categories and, and frameworks and politics as reacting to the kind of nonsense tweets. We've got to think seriously about what does a claim to work do? Um, 
and, and as for that second point, I, I think you really hit the, the nail on the head there, Bonnie. There's this kind of there's a very useful corrective in in this sort of thinking about the total provisioning of activities, total provisioning, right? How are how are needs met in general? How is the um, sort of cons- consumption or reproduction side of that circuit of capital? How does that how does that happen, right? And, and moving the focus just from one place to another. And I think that's really important. But there is um, sometimes, I think, a, a tendency to say, um, that's the good stuff, that's the caring good stuff, and that's the bad stuff. But And I think we can see this in Sarah's um, example. Right? In a sense, um, there is care being done in relations or bits of work that we might not ideally want to have exist, right? Do we think that people should be able to order someone on their phone to bring them food, right? What does that mean, right? Does Is all care work we want to perhaps avoid a um, simple valorization of, of all, I mean, not valorization, valorization just in the sense of sort of placing esteem, assuming uh, uh, automatic goodness um, to that uh, life-making or, or um, reproductive pr- provisioning work because I think ultimately we have a couple of things being reproduced. One is everyday labor power, and in that kind of thing, um, we also find like uh, the, the, the human social relations that, that bring us joy, that bring us fulfillment, that bring us excitement. But the other thing that's being produced is class society, which of course can bring us joy and fulfillment. But those are, are those joys and fulfillments we, we straightforwardly want, right? Um, if the thing that we're reproducing with our care work or our socially reproductive work is the thing that is um, the source of that exploitation, the source of the alienation, right? What do we, how do we respond to that? And, and I think we can use, we definitely should use that move to say, no, don't just look at this factory, look at the whole social order. That's really, really important. Um, but at the same time, keeping that sense of what is this thing that's being produced and, and who is involved, right? Does it change? Um, what is the kind of crossover of the waged and unwaged? Who is doing this work? What's the role of the state in that? And that's something that's not often not discussed, right? Um, which seems like a very important bit. And what happens when that state is, is the primary outsourced state? What does that look like? Um, so I think it's very important to keep the total order of work, the total social division of, of labor, including the production, reproduction of, of labor power in view. Um, and I think that, that that moves the site of politics um, in, a, in a way which can be very generative. But again, that's always that question of, of strategy, right? Um, how are we coherent a kind of political block? Um, and I think that's the most important thing for me. There's, there's one view which says we need to think, we need to expand our concepts because it addresses the harm of a concept not having been sufficiently inclusive. And I kind of understand that, but I think the more important thing is what strategically comes from this, what what avenues open up, what horizons become visible, what aspects of, of human social life are, and, and of, of oppression of exploitation are, are brought into view by that. And that, that seems um, the reason to, to make these kind of expansions to me. Sarah, any Yeah, oh, so many thoughts. Um, the first thing that I wanted to think about is this sort of social media demand, right? And like, I, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to spend as little time as possible on social media these days, actually, because it's terrible, which, of course, means I'm also trying to, like, rethink how I get my information in ways that aren't just from Twitter. Um, But when we are making demands, when the Wages for Housework movement was making demands of wages for housework, right, they were thinking a lot about who they were making those demands of, 
and on, right? It wasn't like my husband should pay me because that is already indirectly the system that they had, which was bad because it made your husband your boss, which is a bad recipe for relationships. Um, And so when we're thinking about like the demands on social media, that this is work, we're not wrong to say that tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming or whatever is work. It is literally producing value tweet by tweet for these jerks. And now we just saw, you know, how much Elon Musk was willing to pay to buy Twitter, $44 billion or so worth of value. And we are producing that every time right? So who are we making the demand for wages of? It shouldn't be each other, right? It should be, we should own the means of fucking tweet production, right? Um, What would it look like if these were public? What would be different about them if it was public? Pretty much everything. Um, I was trying to write an article about content moderators work recently and the editor um, wanted me to talk about Web3, which I didn't even know that they were calling cryptocurrency Web3 now, but whatever. Um, so the the way that we think about like who the demand is being made on when we're talking about something being work or not being work is, is worth um, bringing back into the conversation. Um, then, yeah, I think the challenge of all of this stuff is thinking dialectically, right? But like the way that... Um, concept creep we sort of try to as amelia was saying we sort of try to to solve it by like defining it and this is always how we're going to understand this thing um doesn't reflect the way the world works and the way that we think in community with each other um but i've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about something that i will absolutely fight you is not work which is grief Um, And the reasons that it is disruptive to capitalism are precisely that you cannot work at it. And we tend to talk about it in these ways that imply that you can. So you need to do, you need to take time to grieve. You need to process and you need to whatever. And anybody who has ever been through this knows that there is no taking time to do it. It's great to have time and we do need that time. But like it's not going to work on a timeline. Um, so Barnaby will know what I'm talking about when I talk about, um, Jewish custom of sitting Shiva, right. Which is a a particular amount of time that you grieve in. But again, like grief's not going to be over after that period of time is done. Right. And it will come back when you least expect it. And like, believe me, it's really inconvenient that way. And so I think one of the real challenges in, in thinking about how to write about this, aspect of being human, right, is to try to break it out of these frameworks of work, which are the thing that, you know, I have been thinking in and learning in and and writing in and theorizing in for 20 something years of my life now. So it's really, really hard, right, to think about things that are not work, because this is my tendency is to always think of them as work. um, And to always think about like, what is the usefulness of bringing a sort of Marxist framework of thinking about work to everything to relationships to whatever. Um, And so trying to sort of break free, not of Marx, never of daddy Marx, but of the usefulness of the lens of work. And actually think of why certain things are so counter, not counterproductive, but counter to productivity. Well, since you mentioned daddy Marx, um, there is, that seems to me, a, a, a big difference that, that happens 
uh, with older ways of talking about work on the left, once we allow this concept creep or once once work becomes our subject, as it has been throughout this conversation, rather than the worker and rather than some specific subject called the working class, the old claim was, Marx's claim was, that um, though, though lots of people through history have done all kinds of work, there's something particular about the work performed by proletarians, the uh, waged work uh, from people who are doubly free, people who, who can sell their labor to whatever boss they choose, and also who, who are ironically, tragically free from the means to reproduce themselves except by selling their labor power. That, Marx thought, gave them a kind of emancipatory subject position. They, they didn't have any property to defend, nothing to lose but their chains. And so the initial Marxist interest in work was framed around an identification of a class that he thought had the power to emancipate everyone, to, to, to liberate humanity. And I think the ways we talk about work now are quite different from that. The ways we've been talking about work in this conversation are about lots of different experiences of work and the various kinds of miseries involved in them and the kinds of, of, of immediate politics that might apply to wanting to change those miserable experiences without the same grand kind of emancipatory claim that we've identified a subject uh, that, that, uh, that, that has a particular experience of work, which renders it uh, the, the universal uh, agent of redemption for all, all humanity. So I, I, am I right to see that change? As, um, are, are these different ways of talking about work in different parts of the planet? That it might be that if we're talking about work in contemporary China, it's easier to identify a, a, a proletariat in the traditional sense, uh, and things look more fragmented uh, in the global north. Um, uh, or or has, has there been this change, or am I, am I wrong to think that, that you're both talking about work and not talking about something called a working class? And is that does that track a, a change in our experience of what work is and how capitalism operates, Amelia? I think that's a great question. Um, so I, I think we can also draw a bit of a distinction between that kind of big historical subject, the big, this is the class that will emancipate the whole world, versus sort of a more moderate claim, which might be something like this particular position within the production of value, within the, within the labour process, gives this class a particular political power which no other group has, right? And I think it's fair to say that there, there, are, there are moments of each shade in, in, in Marx and Engels, right? Um, one is sort of this. This is this is uh, the overcoming of everything. One is like this is the place where politics happens, and I think with that second kind in mind, well, what do you do in a situation where the majority of work in a particular society doesn't have that feature? Well, what do you do, right? So there's an interesting discussion of of, of this in um, Jason E. Smith's book on on automation. Um, uh, on, I think it's called something about machines and service work. Basically, um, it's a very machines, good book. Service work. Smart machines and exactly that's it. That's the that's the one. Um, and basically, he talks about the possibilities of power that come from particular bits of being in the social division of labour, rather than just that kind of where you are in the is, is your job productive in that Marxist sense or not. And I think that's one helpful way to think about power. Um, teachers are one key example. Teachers might not themselves teachers themselves. Uh, don't produce value. We know this. Marx gives this as, as an explicit example, right? Um, but um, teachers have a place in the social division of labour such that the school shuts down, other people can't go to work. So there's a kind of uh, a kind of power building that can come from that. But we are in a slightly difficult position where it, it there's one move which says everyone's still working class, and that, that's true in one sense. If we locate being working class in the situation of having been dispossessed of having been separated from the means of production right but is everyone doing that 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 value producing work well it looks quite different in a society like ours um, where 
a lot of work is not productive in that strict sense, right? So, so what does that mean for the potential power? It might mean you have to look in different places. It doesn't mean that you abandon that sort of fundamental tool of building the power of the working class. But in terms of the, the sort of um, the point of the power that comes from the point of production, if that's mainly located in other in other places, right? Which which I think it's pretty pretty fair to say it is. Um, what do you do in the meantime? Um, and the answer might be you look for strategic places within the social division of labour. You might think we'll focus on that's one possible strategy. You might think we'll focus on the the the, the remaining bits of the point of production. Um, you might think okay, and some people have suggested sort of looking at uh, these brittle points in these big global supply chains, big bits of logistics. That's another strategy. Another strategy is to say, well, you expand out from work in that more narrow sense to work in the more general sense. Um, but we are in a kind of you are in a, in a tricky position if this claim is true that power, not in the sense of the the first kind of emancipatory universal subject you spoke about, Bonnie, but the second sort of more mild claim that. Um, a particular political power comes from being at the point of production. What do you do when the majority of work in the country you're in isn't like that? And how do you change your politics as as a as a left that that still sees they work the working class as a important subject by virtue of that relation, by virtue of that position, rather than necessarily having the stronger this subject will emancipate the whole world for you. And it, it's genuinely like a strategic conundrum. And I think each of the responses people have given. Um, seem like perfectly reasonable um to that problem um but it remains a, a, a sticky problem and one which sort of um there isn't necessarily one easy solution it would be great if there if there were right if i could be like aha this is the way forward but it, it, it's a uh, it's tricky when you are in an advanced post advanced industrial advanced post-industrial whatever economy to know what you do with the fact that it might be the case it seems to me that it is the case that a particular strong bit of power comes from being at the point of production. Sarah, you are, among many other things, a labour reporter in mostly the contemporary United States. Do you see miserable work? Do you see an emancipatory thing called a working class? Do you see something in between? This is my moment when I know that the word proletarian doesn't mean working class. It means without reserves, right? And that, so I think this is, um, Comrade Joshua Clover is always harping on about this, but he's right, right? that it's actually important to remember that we're not just talking about workers. We are talking about those of us who have no option but to work or starve or beg, right? That we don't have another solution. Um, I have this wonderful poll quote from when I interviewed Amelia about her book where I made her uh, go into what was primitive what was primitive accumulation and why it had done you dirty. Um, because I think, and I say this as a labor journalist who spends all of my damn life um, writing about work and interviewing workers, um, we can get lost in the trap of thinking about work as the only place of struggle worth imagining and then certain kinds of work and then blah, blah, blah. Once I got into a really annoying argument with a guy who wanted to parse out the difference between domestic workers who work for a for-profit company and therefore are producing some sort of value in that traditional sense and domestic workers who are hired directly by a family and therefore are not really producing value, but are freeing up someone in the family still to go to the kind of work that maybe is productive of value. And that somehow he was saying, that this would be massively different in terms of strategy for how you would actually organize those workers. And other than like some of them have one particular employer and others are scattered among many employers, I think that's bullshit. Um, and that is, you know, there are ways we can get really stuck in 
arguing over whether the tendency of the, you know, whether the rate of profits actually has a tendency to fall or not, um, and not think about where people actually are. And my job is to talk to the people. So that is, you know, the real challenge. And like, I could be an asshole and say to the Amazon workers who just won this absolutely stunning victory in an Amazon warehouse that, well, most of Amazon profits come from Amazon Web Services, which is true, which we are probably like using now. Um, we're on Skype, so that's Microsoft. But like, I'm sure Jeff Bezos has his fingers in this somewhere. Um, and so that one warehouse is a tiny, 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 and not even that particularly important fraction of what actually makes Amazon profitable. But nevertheless, it scared the crap out of Amazon that they want, right? And that is also strategically important. And so um, not that I don't think that these questions of, of value and production are incredibly important, and they are, but that when we are talking about the liberation of this thing called the working class or the proletariat, we have to actually think about like, what are those people's lives like? And that includes getting beaten up by the cops trying to do your damn job on a Saturday night. Um, it includes not being able to pay the rent. It includes your job being so completely freaking miserable that you want to kill yourself, right? It includes all of these conditions. And those are, again, they're places where we can build solidarities that then are useful in terms of thinking strategically, right? I don't think that, um, I mean, anyway, we don't have the power to do that us on this call. Like it's great, but you know, a hundred years of, of Trotskyist, you know, parties have not actually managed to put a strategy into work in, um, into, into, um, you know, action, I guess, no matter how many theoretical discussions I had at some point, we have to be out there, um, looking at how people are actually living and organizing themselves and thinking about, okay, how can we help this? What can we add to it? How can we help connect these people to these people over here, to these people over here, to me and my actual material circumstances, which also suck, right? Um, to my condition of having this be my boss. Um, that these are things that um, if we narrow too much, I think we miss a lot of spaces where we have power. Yeah, there's a strangely kind of one-sided uh, telling of capitalism where it's the production of value. Um, but of course, capitalism also requires the realization of value. It has to sell its commodities. It also requires value to be produced. You know, so the story of volume one of Marx's capital is production. But then you've got to realize your value. You've got to sell it. Because if he hadn't had the, you know, bad sense to die early. <laughs> well, actually, you know, this is this is why David Harvey always says volumes two and three are, are so important because because there you learn that actually production has to happen in a certain place. And so struggles over who controls spaces matter. It has to happen in as quick a time as possible. And so that's why struggles over uh, who controls people's time are important and, and, and goods have to be sold. And that's why struggles over, you know, whether landlords can get rent from from workers are, are important and not just what happens to workers in uh, in factories. Uh, and so it's it's great in this discussion about work. That we're talking not about work in that uh, uh, one-sided way that perhaps followed from an over-optimistic confidence that if you focus on this single point, the point of production, and if you could isolate it as a point of value production, which as Amelia was saying is more complicated now in, in, in countries where so much of the labour is supervisory and the value is being produced elsewhere, um, uh, and, where, and where so many people don't have nothing to lose but their chains. I mean, who's proletarian uh, in a world where, 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 where people have savings but also are, are, are precarious in various ways? Uh, the, the, the sites of their precarity and the sites that capital needs to reproduce 
use itself might be more multiple than um, uh, than, than just the, the the factory or the call center. Um, uh, Annie has been joined by her, my wonderful goddaughter, Annie's daughter. Uh, did you did you want to come in on this, Annie? Uh, yeah, actually, well, I, I did have a question. It was a bit of a pivot. I've been like a bit bamboo. <laughs> yeah, a bit flustered. Um, no, um, I think that uh, what I wanted to do, just kind of conscious that we have some questions in the chat that we also do want to ask, but I had one um, uh, big question that I wanted to ask, which again is another pivot. Apologies, I'm pivoting a lot tonight. Uh, <laughs> I'll give it to Barney and we'll ask some questions from the chat. Um, so I guess one of the things I wanted to kind of like think through is like, what is the left up against? Um, and I think that a lot of the time we kind of focus um, in the discussion of what the left is up against um, on bosses and companies and like union busting lawyers who get hired to come and like um, ruin our efforts. Um, but I think that maybe um, on some deeper level, um, there might be something which can be said of, hey, Bubba, do you want to sit down? <laughs> there might be something which can be said of, um, uh, I guess if we're thinking about this kind of um, often repeated like line about neoliberalism making us all like brands, right? And how like so much of like what ties people to jobs, even where they think, oh, sorry, baby. What so much of what ties people to jobs, even where they kind of like think of the job as shit, is the like possibility of some better job in the future. Oh, one sec. Okay, it's the possibility that at some point in the future they're maybe going to get a bit of a better job. They're going to get a promotion. They're going to get. Um, and I'm kind of like thinking about this, thinking through it with like two kind of uh, examples. So one is a couple of years back. Um, a report was released by Goldman Sachs in which like some of the like analysts um, kind of reported on their working conditions, which are, um, as you can imagine, really shit, but also the fact that they're working kind of 120 hour weeks as standard on 40k balance, right? Then like, um, on the other hand, just kind of thinking through what you mentioned, one second. This is great context for the complicated multiplicities of the kinds of work that people have to do. Um, so uh, Annie, as, as holding this event and also trying to uh, trying to take care of Maisha, I think when Annie can rejoin us, we'll um, uh, uh, we'll we'll return to to that question. Um, I wanted to pick up on something in the chat um, uh, as Annie was instructing me to do rightly, um, uh, but it's a way into a big question. And, and this is, I guess my, my last big question and we'll come back to Annie, which is um, someone asked in the chat. So, uh, it's about what our problem with work is and, and what we imagine as a utopian, gorgeous, glorious future when we think about work. Um, uh, but before I get there, uh, Annie's back with us. So I'm going to hand back over to her. Uh -huh. So sorry about that, guys. All right. So basically, on the one hand, thinking of this Goldman Sachs example, just thinking about how, like, you know, when we conceptualize the idea of a work, if you break down 120 hours a week on a 40K salary, you're looking at very close to minimum wage, right? If not below. Um, then on the other hand, thinking about the example that Sarah brought up earlier of, like, working in a restaurant and everybody assumes that this is just, like, one stop on the way. Like, the idea that you kind of have to pay your dues in really shit jobs and then at some point in the future you're going to get this amazing job, right? 
but all that's conceptualized as the horizon is more work, right? <laughs> I guess I'm kind of like wondering why or how it's so seductive, this kind of like cruel optimism that um, we will eventually attain something which continues to degrade, exploit us, et cetera, because I'm not sure so much that senior managers report huge amounts of job satisfaction. So I was wondering, you know, we can think strategically about how we combat bosses, how we combat um, companies, how we combat union busters. How do we combat this kind of like affective, like control that work seems to have over the worker? That was a question worth waiting for. Uh, I'll go it's to, a, uh, sorry. Yeah, you go first. <laughs> it's a really fantastic question. And I, I think um, there's often this view that like people automatically don't uh, like straightforwardly don't like their jobs. Whereas I think often it can be ambivalent, right? You might like some aspect, you might like another aspect, you might like some aspect, some relation, some kind of uh, task you do, but not the whole thing. So, and I think, I think this relates to another kind of, uh, there are these sort of like, doesn't even make sense to call them vulgar Marxism, but there are bits of um, some kind of run through various iteration versions of uh, apparently like Marxist ideas. And, and one is, in one sense, in a, in a very banal sense, this is true, but it becomes much more complicated. And, and of course, one of these is the, the, the confusion about um, uh, labor producing all value, right, in, in one particular way or all, like, and the other is this idea that the opposition of interest is always straightforward, right? Um, because of course, in the most background sense, workers and firm, workers and capital, workers and capital have opposing interests. This is this is true in the most general sense, right? Um, but in any workplace, um, there especially modern workplaces where the social relations at work are part of um the management of work, the kind of workplace regime, um, part of the um, way in which that um, supervision of uh, the discharge of labour power, Marx talks about, uh, you know, the, the fact that, that it has to be done in the proper manner, right? So you have people watching you as you're working, making sure you're doing it in the proper manner, right? Um, so you have in modern workplaces, um, the creation of interests which are cohering these interests which in the background are opposed, workers and capital. Um, and some of that relates pretty directly to subjectification. Some of that works relates to seeing yourself as a particular kind of subject, um, especially in that kind of like time delay thing you laid out, Annie, like in the future you'll get this. And of course we have this, this background hegemonic ideology of, of, of meritocracy, of this idea that you you are um, you get what you deserve, right? Um, you work hard and you get what you deserve. And of course, if you don't work hard, you haven't got what you, you you've you've got what you deserve too, right? That's the real cruelty of that. Um, so there's sort of um, the way in which that operates is is relevant to this too, but it's also the way in which subjects are produced at work and interests are cashed out over a different temporality to that. Always in the background, workers and firms have opposing interests, but of course they don't because if the company goes away, like if you have capital flight, is that in the interest of the workers? It's not in the interest of the specific workers who are based in that firm, right? So, so this kind of the complexity of the interest, the complexity of the subjects created, the way in which, um, as I was speaking about a bit before, the subject of work is your relationship to work. And that is also the subject of control in the workplace, right? Um, 
and the kind of therapeutic disclosures that are expected not only of employees but also of managers the kind of um, affective space of work as not just the kind of we're all a family here but we're all a family who worse speak about our feelings to each other right um so that seems very important to the way work um is carried out and i think that has a really important effect on the creation of varying interests which aren't which go beyond there's a kind of of course, you have this basic level of, of this opposition, but on top of that, you have all kinds of things built, all kinds of subjects, all kinds of various uh, short and long-term interests. And, and the notion of the career is is one of those two. The notion of just one more year and you'll progress, right? Um, and of course, not everyone can, right? This is this is the real, um, as you pointed out, I think the, the cruel optimism framework is perfect for talking about this, right? That the way that you'll promise this thing, it, you, it, it is impossible for everyone to get it. Um, and that creates a, a, a possibility of control, a possibility of heightened exploitation, a possibility of heightened competition between workers as well, which is a further barrier. And I think this gets to the heart of your question of cohering people. Um, and if you put that also in the background of a general dispersal of workers into smaller and smaller workplaces, well, it becomes even harder to bring people together, right? People um, see themselves as in competition with each other. They are in some strong sense, um, and they're far away from each other. They're isolated. That makes the challenge of the left all the more necessary and all the more formidable. Yeah, I mean, this is this is why I wanted to write the book that I wrote, right, is, is to sort of, like, try to make not even to try to make a dent in it because I, I am a writer and yet I think that like ultimately the change isn't going to come from writing. It's going to come from sort of people's experiences in the world. And so more accurately, I wanted to have a book that people who were already sort of feeling this discontent with the jobs they're supposed to love could pick up and, and see some um, some arguments for why they are correct and also some examples of what people did about it. Um, because I think that that is ultimately sort of the utility of what I do. It's not to convince people that work sucks because they are probably already convinced of that um, in many cases, even if, and I literally start the book with the words, like, I love my work, um, trying to head off the kinds of annoying questions that I've been answering for a year and a half about like, well, but if I do like my job though, um, guys, literally I started the book that way. Um, because I, I think most of us, even my worst jobs, um, find something to enjoy about it. Otherwise, we lose our minds entirely, um, which is not to make a sort of false consciousness argument, just that like being social with other people, like my most abusive workplace, I also have the most friends from that place that I still talk to regularly and consider like really important people to me because it was just such a terrible workplace um, that we really, you know, ended up bonding over the struggles we were constantly in and the, the uh, amount we tried to take care of each other. So, you know, I think that there is a real challenge here and also one that, that ends up being, um, overstated. Like, I think unions will sometimes make the excuse that they can't organize this or that kind of work because the workers in it are this or that kind of person. So either you can't or organize sort of middle-class office workers because middle-class office workers don't think they need unions, which is very much proving not to be true these days, or you can't organize um, restaurant workers because there's too much turnover and they're not, you know, the right kind of workers, mostly because they're girls. Um, but this... These understandings are often sort of too easy, and I tend to push back on them by, you know, with with 
admittedly often anecdotes, also data, but the way that we have to sort of think about this as an organizing question, right? Not just a theoretical one, but an actual like, okay, do you love your job? What do you love about your job? What don't you love about your job? What could be better? Um, Those are the obvious questions, right? But like, what would you really like to do with your time if you didn't have to work? Um, Can we start to think of those as also organizing questions and not just pie in the sky theoretical questions, but questions that we also might ask somebody to break through the spell of, well, if I just get this job or just get that job, um, if I just switch careers, I, you know, have been complaining a lot to friends lately going like, I'm really sick of being a journalist because my working conditions suck. Um, and I wrote this whole book saying that like, well, I shouldn't be looking for fulfillment in my job anyway. Right. But at the end of the day, I still want my life and a thing that I'm still going to be required to spend a lot of my life doing until we actually have the revolution, um, to be as unmiserable as possible, um, in part. So I have some sanity left to do the organizing in our spare time. So, you know, these are, these are complicated, difficult questions. And like one of the biggest reasons that work that we aspire to better work is that like, we know we can't avoid it. So what then could I be doing that is slightly less awful to do with my day, considering that I have to do something because I'm not rich. And that, that acceptance of that, um, when I was covering the factory closure, um, the carrier plant, which is a thing that became really important in the 2016 elections here in the States, um, I started asking the workers who were losing their jobs, like, you know, hey, what are you going to miss about the job? Spoiler alert, nobody said the job itself. Most of them said their coworkers, the union, the steady paycheck mostly. Um, and then like, what would you do if money wasn't an issue? And they would all have some answer to that and then immediately come back to me with, but money is an issue. I've got two kids and a mortgage or whatever the answer was, right? Um, and I think that those are the realities behind this idea that we love work. Is like, well, we're kind of stuck with it. So... You know, can we think about those as useful organizing questions because they reveal sort of the reality and also to take seriously that like people don't want to have miserable lives. There's a, you know, other than like a tiny group of us who are romantic enough to think that we're going to have short, miserable lives that bring about the revolution and then everybody after us is going to do great. Most people want to have a life that doesn't suck. Well, that's a fantastic segue into that last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is what our horizon should be. Uh, when we complain about work, in what direction are we pointing? Uh, what do we want? And it's worth asking because there are lots of different possibilities on the left. So we've got some good questions in the chat and, and someone's asked, are worker cooperatives the answer? Um, and of course, if you work in a workers' cooperative and you're still producing for the market, you're still, if, even if you're not dominated by an individual boss, you're still impersonally dominated by the value form, by the market, you're still producing commodities for the market. And of course, lots of worker cooperatives uh, are, not, are not particularly fun places to work. Uh, maybe in various ways, they might be better uh, than capital. Similarly, uh, uh, traditions of talking about nationalization or various kinds of, of, of social ownership, where there are traditions of uh, workers adding the phrase under workers control to, to the demand for nationalization, because state bureaucrat bosses might not be much better than, than private bosses. One of the good things about the conversation we've been having, and one of the good things about the recent conversation about work 
itself is the idea that the content of the work matters and not only its form, not only who's who's controlling it, um, but what you're doing. So is our demand then for a better way of distributing drudgery than capital allows? Uh, the early 20th century, George Bernard Shaw talked about the most miserable job should be paid the most um, uh, and, and various kinds of class pressures prevent uh, people who clean toilets from being paid more than corporate lawyers, even though people who clean toilets might have a more miserable working life. So is our demand to say the realm of necessity of drudgery is with us for good or is with us for a long time, but we want now to talk about better ways of distributing who does it and, and how much they're paid. Um, or do we have a more ambitious horizon, William Morris's horizon of all work becoming something like play? Um, uh, is, is the demand for the for the abolition of uh, uh, work, that we have that language of abolition now from talking about borders and prisons and the police, uh, and, and, and is that a good language for talking about work itself, for talking about the wage waged work as, a, as an alienated kind of work that you do for money and not because you've democratic decided uh, you, you should do it. Um, to go back to the, the, the big daddy that, that Sarah referred to, it's very interesting to recover these little phrases of Marx's on thinking about work after capitalism, and especially work in a kind of uh, distant future. I don't know how distant he thinks of it as a kind of communist society. He talks about the stage where the possession and preservation of general wealth require a lesser labour time of society as a whole. So free time, not just time spent in work, that's not a new idea. But he also talks about a, a condition in the next line where labor in which a human being does what a thing could do has ceased. So in which our work has become more fulfilled by the passage of machinery and automation. Um, and, and, and work where he says we get a rich individuality, which is as all sided in its production as in its consumption. So where the experience of work hasn't been abolished in favor of a life simply of leisure, uh, but has been uh, enriched so that the work of looking after people, the work of meeting our needs, made possible by the kind of technologies that we can develop so that we don't have to do awful work, has been transformed into work that is also as much as possible empowering and enriching. Is that a crazily utopian horizon? Uh, should we be talking instead about how we distribute the drudgery um, uh, and, uh, and and our, our changes in the form of work, like getting rid of capitalists and having workers' cooperatives or getting rid of capitalists and having state bureaucrats run nationalised industries? How much hope do these things offer uh, for your politics that wants to think both of you about not just uh, workers and bosses, but the work itself that we do. Big question about what kind of politics we should be aiming for. I'll start with you, Sarah. Sorry to me, there's a little Marx phrase about uh, cook shops of the future. <laughs> anyway. Yes, not going to write I'm kidding, I'm no kidding. Um, it's not a utopian, yeah. I think that these are really useful questions to poke at, right? Because um, I'm also going to point out it wasn't William Morris who wanted to turn work into play. He talked about three things, right? One of which is pleasure in the work itself, but one of which is time away from it. And one of which is control over your product. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I think um, uncle Bill there had some points um, mm -hmm. that I think we can pull something from that is, is different than this, this idea that work will necessarily always become play. Um, I don't think it will spoiler alert. Um, wrote a book about it. But like the question about what work, um, I, I joke about having a sort of version of like shag, marry, kill, but for work, which is like, do we want to eliminate it? Do we want to sort of nationalize it and, and distribute it differently? Do we want to sort of turn something into a co-op, right? So like, you know, does McDonald's need to exist? No, probably not. Um, but does something like Deliveroo 
exist. Like Callum Kent writes about this sort of beautifully, I think, right? That like something like that could be lovely because some people can't leave their house, in fact, and would like to have and need to have food brought to them. Um, the people's delivery might be very, very different than the one we have, but we can envision it still existing. Um, and these are are sort of fun games to play. But I think the 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 problem is capitalism, obviously, but the pandemic sort of gave us this moment that we could see things changing very quickly and that people were having rapidly changing experiences of work. And again, in that case, mostly for the worse. But um, I was really stuck on, I, I spoke to one of the workers at this um, GE factory in um Massachusetts, that the workers there had demanded, instead of making like military aircraft, which I'm pretty sure is what they made, they wanted to make um, ventilators, right? They wanted to make machines for saving lives. And they said, we could retool this factory very quickly and we could do this. We could make these machines. Um, and that would be work that would be A, more socially necessary right now, and B, would like it's not about whether it would be more pleasurable for them to sit there fiddling with a, you know, wrench on a ventilator than a military aircraft, but it would feel more meaningful because it would be machines for saving lives rather than ending them. Um, and those kinds of demands, you know, those open up some space to think about what would be useful and socially necessary work. Um, the questions of caring labor, um, are also really complicated, actually, right? Like there is some forms of caring labor that people might prefer to not have done by a human. There is a lot of work that you could, in fact, maybe have done by machines and therefore give people more of a sense of independence than having to have another person do it for you. Whereas on the other hand, there's a lot of the caring work that is the fact that we are, you know, humans and interdependent and need each other. Um, and I think that, you know, these are, again, just like, some of the many possibilities that are fun to sort of poke at and debate. But I, I really do kind of think like William Morris's point is, is a useful one to think about, right? That there are three broad things that we can use to imagine um, shaping good demands around work. And that is sort of more control over it, right? Whether that be worker cooperatives or, you know, nationalized industries under worker control or just having a union and strong worker power in your existing workplace. Um, that gives you more control over your work and your product, um, which could make it more pleasurable maybe. Um, and then again, more, more time away from the thing. And yeah, till we get to the revolution and then um, something, something cookshops of the future. But like the way that we can imagine making demands that are, that can be um, the sort of non-reformist reforms, right? That bring us closer to something else that, yeah, I, I don't, I don't actually think William Morris's points are a pretty bad guidelines on that front. I certainly agree with that, Amelia. So I think this is always a challenge. How do you imagine something different in the midst of the current thing? How do you imagine something totally different? And you get these kind of very bizarre attempts, especially online, where people are like, what will you be doing in the post-revolutionary commune? And people are always like, well, I'll be the poet or I'll be the potter. And you think, okay, well, there won't be exactly the same jobs and not everyone gets to be the poet. But I think there are some important things we can say. I think 
the thing I'd want to say first is that Marx notes two hallmarks of the capitalist labor process. One, the surplus goes to the capitalist. This is uh, sort of indirectly enforced. It's not like feudalism. You don't have someone coming around saying, give me your, this This is what you earn for me. I'm taking it. But it happens, right? The surplus goes to them. The other hallmark is the control over the labor process, like the control over the process, making sure that the labor power is discharged in that proper manner. So both of those would need to be changed to have a form of work which satisfies some kind of um, freedom horizon, right? Um, exactly what that looks like, I'm not sure. It, it seems complicated, but it seems like both of those need to be in view. I think the, the point you made, Barney, about drudgery is, is really useful. And I, I like the notion of drudgery for a couple of reasons. One, it allows us to project into the future without coming up with, you know, cookbooks, whatever. But also because drudgery implies some kind of social relation. It implies the thing that is like not necessary, right? The activity that is replicated, the activity that is unnecessarily harsh, unnecessarily boring, unnecessarily rote. I really like that aspect of it because I think I have a, I have a slight worry about some of the difficulties around this question of, of essential, uh, because there is a, a, a two-faced direction to it. One is that essential points to a future in which people can collectively decide what is good, what is necessary. But the other is that it talks about, sometimes there's a tendency to talk about the society we live as if that's already that kind of society in which we can, we have the power to decide genuinely what is essential. And I, I don't think we we do. And I think we saw this in, in, in the pandemic because as much as we were able, as much as it was such a useful tool for um, organized labor to say these jobs are essential, therefore pay us more. We also had the fact that it was up to the state, up to employers to say this is essential or not. And, and as always, the, the, the Germans had a, had a troublingly uh, direct way of expressing this notion of essential, which was to say system necessary rather than essential. And I think that cuts through some of the kind of the potential for the left symbolic intervention, right? System necessary, right? Essential for what? Well, the maintenance of the system. So I like drudgery because it cuts through that in a, in a really helpful way, I think. Um, and, and I think um, I think a, a horizon of reducing drudgery is a really important one. And taking into view the entire social provisioning, I saw there was a question about uh, care receivers. And I think that's that's an important way of bringing that into the fore, thinking about the total provisioning and reducing the drudgery in that, but improving the 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 the, the standards for everyone. That seems that seems very very important. Um, because uh, we want to avoid that kind of um, replication of our present world via, you know, which job will you have in the commune or the imagination that the future we desire is already present in the world in which we live because it simply isn't. Um, and I think the notion of drudgery is, is one of many tools that could take us from um, where we are to where we want to be without that kind of uh, idealism creeping in. A wonderful way to end. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Amelia and to Sarah. It's been great to have a discussion in which we clarify that the business of the left is about making people free. Uh, it's not just about, uh, though it is about uh, ensuring that people have more money and that the money doesn't all flow to the top. And that's important partly because it makes us freer to do the things that we want in life. Uh, but it's also a more ambitious horizon than just the economistic. Um, it's about ensuring that our time is not spent controlled by other people or controlled by an impersonal force called the marketplace, uh, but one in which we feel empowered to control our lives and one in which the work of providing for our needs um, is where it's difficult, managed and distributed reasonably, and also made as beautiful and as enriching and as liberating as it can be and, and, and not kept difficult and kept uh, awful uh, because it being awful makes profits for a few 
uh, and enslaves ultimately all of us, even though he's making profits uh, to the control of the market mechanism. So that idea of a left which reclaims work and, and, and makes it a space of freedom has been a wonderful one. Uh, thank you so much to Sarah. Um, thank you so much to Amelia. Thank you to my wonderful co-host, Annie who has been dealing with her daughter and tells me to round up so she can go and deal with her daughter more. Um, so thank you to all of you. And you've been watching Salvage Live, brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage. Our last issue had a marvellous essay uh, by Sarah in it about grief and the work of mourning. Um, uh, next issue, going to the press shortly, so please subscribe now. Thanks for watching and see you again soon for our next event. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.